Today, about 15 million people care for a loved one with Alzheimer's in the United States, and many caregivers find their role difficult and yet rewarding. But knowing what to expect and preparing for the challenges can help people with Alzheimer's and other dementias live better. Here with more on just how to do that is Dr. Andrea Berg. She's Assistant Professor of Medicine specializing in geriatrics at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Berg. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Let's begin by first trying to define for our listeners what is dementia and how does that differ, if at all, from Alzheimer's disease? So dementia is a general term. It's used for uh, loss of cognitive functioning, things like thinking, memory, reasoning, to uh, such an extent that it would interfere with someone's ability uh, to perform daily activities. Alzheimer's is the most common type of dementia among older adults. And so when you say, so basically they're often used interchangeably these days, but the types of characteristics that you might have if you have Alzheimer's, do they vary very much from a dementia caused by something other than Alzheimer's? Uh, Yes, there's other types of Alzheimer's, uh, frontotemporal disorders, uh, dementia with uh, with Parkinson's or Lewy body. Um, But Alzheimer's, typically the pattern, uh, realizing that it's individualized in each individual, um, but typically starts, um, it's a slowly progressive disease. initially primarily affecting short-term memory, and later on extending into other parts of cognition like language, reasoning, judgment. We're going to talk about some of the problems that arise around this. So when we use the two for at least for today's discussion, a lot of the characteristics that we'll be talking about would be seen really all through that world of dementia. Yes, it's a spectrum. It's a progressive disorder, and and absolutely, yes. So one of the things that seems to come to mind um, initially is one of the greatest interruptions in the person's functioning is their ability to communicate. And as you said, it happens slowly, and you can see changes over time, and clearly it's an individual thing. But what are the kinds of things that you generally see when someone's beginning to have or has problems in communicating? What are the typical symptoms? Well, as we mentioned, that the initially it's short-term memory uh, is the area of the brain that's first affected and predominantly affected in the early stages. And so at what you might see in a person or in, in oneself is a difficult time remembering recent events or rapidly forgetting things that are told to you. Or for example, they might have trouble finding a word. Definitely. That could be a language part with word finding difficulties or becoming quite repetitive. Uh, Families might notice somebody is being repetitive or unable to maintain focus. And I know a lot of people, at least in my age range, will say, oh, I must be losing it (laughs) because I have trouble with word finding. That's a natural part of aging, but when it becomes more extreme, for example, if you lose your train of thought completely, you begin speaking in, in, um, you know, off on a topic and then you've kind of been lost in your thought pattern repeatedly, that's more common. So what do you recommend to your patients and to the people surrounding them, the caregivers, the loved ones, whatever term you want to use, what do you recommend as the best way to cope with these kinds of communication difficulties? For the patient themselves, uh, in the early stages, um, if this is uh, truly an early dementia and not some other form of memory loss that's not a dementia, Um, In the early stages, lists might help, or organizing oneself, giving uh, verbal 
cues or reminders are very helpful in keeping on track and maintaining focus. Um, and promoting, we, we promote very much physical activity, cognitive engagement, social engagement, um, to maintain a, a vibrant um, and robust uh, health um, across the spectrum. Across the but, spectrum. But, but one of the things that strikes me is, and I think people often do this, in terms of the, the people surrounding people with a um, communication difficulty or particular subsequent to dementia, is that a person may say something, the patient may say something, or the individual may say something, and there's an attempt to correct what they've said. And I think what I've been seeing is, isn't it important rather to be supportive and not necessarily have to make the point that that person misstated something or forgot something. Yeah, we have a mantra that we use a lot in our clinic and recommend people say, just remember, never correct, just redirect. Um, and that comes in many different forms. Um, typically, go, go ahead. Well, typically when you correct somebody, it sort of throws them on their heels and makes them lose their confidence a little bit more. Um, typically people are already a little bit self-conscious about losing uh, memory and are aware to some degree in the earlier stages. Um, so redirecting an, into other areas, changing the topic, um, avoiding a conflict or a problem before you, before you actually get into it. So you would kind of avoid arguing, perhaps offer a guess as to what they were trying to say, maybe limit the distractions in the environment perhaps, or yeah. even focus on how they're feeling perhaps on then rather the concept yeah, kind of absolutely. Um, for example, a common thing um, in the more moderate to advanced stages are people can perseverate on a concept that I want to go home, even if they might be in their home. Um, but they're referencing a different time um, because their time frame might be skewed. And so instead of correcting them, um, which is usually a pretty futile effort, um, focusing in on that concept of home and engaging them on that concept of home. What does that concept mean? What is so appealing about being home? Acknowledging those feelings and validating them can kind of drive it into a different area as opposed to a conflict of correcting them on where they actually might be located in that moment. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with geriatrician Dr. Andrea, Andrea Berg. And we're talking about strategies for living with someone with Alzheimer's disease. Another thing that really kind of becomes a major focus early on and, and in this whole world of living with people with dementia is this notion of driving. Um, when you first start to notice that someone has not got their full faculties, obviously there's a great concern around their continuing to drive. What do you begin to recommend to your patients and their families as to the best way to approach that? This is a really hot topic, um, and uh, it, it, it has a lot of real implications for people. I uh, usually give the advice uh, to family members who approach me with concerns about loved one and their driving um, that I generally say, if you are concerned about your children or your grandchildren driving independently in the car with your loved one, then this is an issue and this is a, con a, 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 a problem uh, So it's for kind us. of a litmus test. That is our litmus test. And then what do you recommend doing? I mean, I've heard things like having a conversation with the individual, starting the process of acknowledging that perhaps it's not a great idea. I mean, how do you, how do you begin to reach someone on that very difficult? Because it's such a sign of, of loss of independence. Absolutely. Well, like everything, this is going to be, have to be individualized to the, to the person. Um, but sometimes you can also avoid a conflict by getting 
taking away the need for driving. Um, that's one way to start. And some people don't really want to drive and it gets them off the hook without engaging in a conflict. So um, seeing if you can kind of put fillers in, different people driving them. So it just sort of obviates the, the need to drive in the first place. That's definitely the first place to start. That's our low-lying fruit. Um, Is there Does it ever work to appeal to a person's sense of responsibility, do you think, even at that early phase of saying that, you know, your reflexes may not be quite as good as they've been, your vision may not be quite as strong as it's been, we don't want you to hurt yourself or anyone else. Does that tend to work as Absol- well? Sometimes it does, absolutely, because cognition is not the only part that comes into play with safe driving. There is a functional component, a dexterity, visual acuity, sensory impairments or functional limitations. They could all impair somebody's ability. So sometimes focusing on some of those less charged um, things as opposed to the cognitive deficits. Um, People are very reasonable often to a sense of of community well-being and um, not driving. Is it helpful to get other people involved in the conversation, whether it be you as as the physician involved or another objective third party or other family members? Does that usually help? We have a lot of discussions in the clinic about driving. Um, We talk about things like, you know, functional assessments um, and cognitive implications um, of of driving. Um, But additionally, if it's a little artificial to give a driving evaluation in the clinic. Some right, of, of our testings we can kind of extrapolate and, and think that there might be some concerns and red flags, but there are also are road-based evaluations that can be done to really get a better sense of how people are performing behind the wheel. Uh, that can be done through the DMV um, or through um, AAA or, or different driving schools. So I know in this community it does really present a great challenge because we don't have the kind of infrastructure in terms of public transportation, especially in some of the more rural areas. So it does it is really a problem and does require people to step up surrounding someone who is all of a sudden not able to drive themselves. Yes, it has real implications on somebody's ability to, to, to function. Um, sometimes you have to get creative in the later stages of the illness um, if there's real safety implications and somebody is resistant or, or if they forget that they don't drive any longer, um, removing access to a vehicle um, out of taking sight, out of mind, or removing the, keys, the, the, car the car from the premises altogether, removing spark, pro- spark plugs, disabling the vehicle. These are all strategies that people have employed. Uh, making sure the spare sets are not available around the house and that you're, you're, they're well accounted for. And there are alternative, uh, as I said, that it, we may not have the, the depth of infrastructure. Some communities have started um, friends in service helping uh, organizations where they actually have volunteers who will drive senior citizens and people obviously are having some dementia issues um, to various appointments and that kind of thing. And we have call a bus. I mean, there are there are alternatives but maybe not as many as there might be in a bigger kind of city with you know, other forms of public transportation. Absolutely. We have such a huge catchment that it's hard to speak in specifics. Uh, I think on the whole, um, your area, your local area office for aging um, would be a great resource to know in your county or where you're located specifically, what are some of those potential options. Let's talk about emotions because obviously emotions are really kind of a central part of this whole experience, both for the caregiver, family members, but also obviously for the individual who's starting to have some cognitive failing. And depression comes up as a major 
consideration, a major concern. And what keeps coming up is how does one distinguish between what we call clinical depression and some aspects of dementia? What are some of the distinctions or the differences? There are so many overlaps. You're absolutely right. And it could be very difficult to discern what could be a primarily a depression, an organic depression, versus um, part of the dementia syndrome. So um, some of the similarities and some of the ways we can parcel it out, if somebody had a history, a longstanding history of anxiety and depression, uh, we're going to still see that manifested with dementia. Dementia won't take that away. So history could help you to perhaps parse out what's going on with the individual at that moment in time. Certainly. Um, it definitely, it's something that we screen for heavily, um, looking as, as there's sometimes behavioral changes um, with dementia. And so are some of these changes that we're seeing part of the dementia syndrome with a longstanding history of depressive symptomology, I'd be more inclined to think this might be responsive to treating the depression. So before we get there in terms of treatment, what are the kinds of things that you see? So the kinds of the characteristics that you might see, something like apathy, for mm-hmm. example, social withdrawal, isolation, even impaired thinking? I mean, do those all go with what would be a classical clinical depression? Right. But they also go with... In the absence of a dementia, if I was screening for somebody for for a depression, um, some concerning flags would be if somebody was showing a loss of interest in things that they previously uh, were very passionate about or interested in or were were uh, more socially withdrawn or introverted where they weren't before... um, Certainly, you know, changes in sleep patterns or eating patterns, uh, changes in weight that were unintentional. Those are all things that we think of. Depressed mood, thoughts of self-harm, hopelessness. Those are more characteristic of a so-called clinical depression. depression. I ask you to hold that thought. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more Upstate's HealthLink on air along with Dr. Andrea Berg, and we're going to be talking more about Um, basically about dementia and how people surrounding people with dementia can cope. We're talking about strategies for living with someone with Alzheimer's disease. And just before the break, we were talking about depression. Let's get back to that. What do you do with your patients or what do you recommend to your uh, to the family of patients who have a, a loved one who has some dementia issues and showing some of these characteristics that look like depression? How do you tease out the diagnosis and then what do you recommend be done? So as we talked about, there's a lot of overlapping symptoms. Um, if I think that there is... Uh, a case that there actually is a reactive depression or just an organic depression at play as well. Um, Often we will try uh, treating that with uh, medications. Like Um, an antidepressant? Exactly. Um, There's um, certainly we can give it a good trial period if it really is more uh, part of the dementia syndrome that the loss of activities or interests is more reflective of a progressive neurodegeneration, um, then it's not going to really respond to antidepressants, and in time we might taper them off. Um, but uh, it, sometimes we do try to see, and, and often there is a reactive depression, understandably so. Reactive to, meaning reactive to their loss of cognitive ability. So in other words, they are self-aware enough to realize, I'm losing my abilities, and therefore they become depressed. In the early stages, certainly. 
So you do find that treatment with things like SSRIs can really mitigate that, can help? They can be very helpful in, in, in some cases. Um, in, in certain situations, it's not, and, and they shouldn't be forever medications for everybody. Um, every medication comes with its own potential side effects. Right, and there are drug-drug interactions one w- might worry about because with some people with some cognitive impairment might be on some other medications like an Aricept type drug or something of that nature. Is there a problem with that? With, with there being Those two are, are written um, together uh, reasonably well. Um, I think that the important part is that with every new drug comes its own set of issues, um, potential side effects for the individual, or just the pill burden of taking another medication and the logistics of having to make sure that medication is being taken appropriately. So basically, it's going to be very much an individual on a case-by-case basis, a lot of the things you're saying. And and it sounds like there's got to be a very close relationship then with someone like a geriatrician or your primary care physician who can begin to kind of try to parse this out and even um, be, be willing to make changes Absolutely. Um, as you move along yeah. because it's hard to really know full well or clearly or definitively that symptoms that you're seeing are being caused by a specific thing. Yes, absolutely. It's it's, it's difficult. Right now, uh, where we are with dementia care, our offerings in, um, in the area of medicines is really just symptom management. Even medications like uh, Dinepazil or Aricept that you referenced earlier, those are really... Um, better described as as symptom management medications, they're not disease-modifying, meaning that they really won't change the course of the illness itself. Um, The progression will happen. It just sort of masks the effects for a while artificially, but it doesn't actually change the process that's going on. So it's all really symptom management, and it has to be um, dynamic and and individualized. So it has to be willing to change Mm -hmm. and respond to kind of what you're seeing in an individual patient. Let's talk a little bit about some of the difficult behaviors that also arise, which cause a lot of difficulty for people. Things, for example, like agitation or wandering or paranoia. Yeah. Um, let's just start with agitation. When someone's very agitated, what's the best methodology? Again, is that something you're going to throw a pill at, or are there some non-medication type ways of coping with that? The first way is always to start with the non-medication ways. Um, our first line is always... Um, to try to take a step back and look at the big picture and see what might be causing some of these behavioral changes. Is it really a dementia? Um, Is it part of the dementia or is it a delirium, which is um, an acute kind of confusional state on top of the dementia in response to something that we could address, like uh, an infection, a urinary tract infection or an upper respiratory infection, um, a new medication, um, an over-the-counter pill that somebody has been giving them, uh, a change in the home environment, maybe a new family member moved in or moved out. So some pattern in the environment may have changed to right. make someone more agitated, for example. Sure. Um, how about things like wandering? Because I know that can really wreak havoc in the lives of of families. Not to what? mention pose a, a real risk, risk to, to the, the person themselves, especially as weather, either side of the extreme of weather and the cold or the hot. Um, wandering is a real is a real concern. Um, people, I usually say, people, you know, they don't wander until they do. <laughs> um, that it's a, it's something that should be on the radar, um, especially for people that are functionally independent and can walk around on their own. Um, it, getting lost in your own area and your own 
um, neighborhood definitely can happen to people. So there are some very reactive things that you could put in place, sort of insurance policies. Uh, there's a safe returns program through the Alzheimer's Association. It's a bracelet with some identifying information um, on it uh, that could connect you back with your loved one. Um, there's something a little bit, there's other options um, that have GPS trackers in them on the bracelet so you can actually find the person as opposed to waiting for somebody passively. Um, so those are some sort of preventive strategies, um, but it, it definitely is a concern. And um, as disease processes progress, uh, that need for direct supervision really is, is becomes more and more apparent, and, and that's when wandering becomes a concern. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Dr. Andrea Berg, and we're talking about strategies for living with someone with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. So um, let's just overall, let's talk about some of the ADL type things, the um, activities of daily living. People who begin to have problems with things like incontinence, for example, who might not have had that prior to that. Issues um, surrounding bathing, that kind of thing. What are some of the general tips or pointers that are important for people to know in terms of strategies? Sure. Um, those are our issues. That the incontinence issue is, is a really large one on caregivers in particular, especially people that are trying to support their loved one in their home. Um, in the late stages of a disease, um, people typically are non-ambulatory, meaning they don't walk, um, and they're incontinent of both bowel and bladder. And that could have some real repercussions on somebody's ability to, to provide that level of care in their home. Um, we don't, there's, there's no magic pill to unfortunately take that away. The result of not being able to walk or to control one's bladder or bowel is really a problem of processing the connection between the brain and the other body parts. So we don't have a way to reverse that at this time. Um, so often it's, it's much more support. So sometimes you need more hands on deck that one person really can't provide all that care at home. That's a very high level of care um, that sometimes people are trying to do all on their own. How about things like diet and nutrition? Because I think along with the potential for apathy and isolation might be a disinterest in food. Mm -hmm. And obviously nutrition is crucial to life. So how, what kind of recommendations or what kind of tips or thoughts sure. do you have around encouraging people to be able to continue to eat well? So he eating should still be a source of pleasure. It's one of those sort of primal, pleasurable activities. Um, so I, I caution people to not get too hung up on the details or place any dietary restrictions on their loved one. If they want to eat ice cream in the later stages three times a day, go for it. And this isn't the time to really be super worried about, you know, diabetes or, you know, watching your salt or sugar. Um, keep eating pleasurable. So frequent meals, um, if, if feeding becomes an issue, as it does for um, people as, as the disease progresses, hand feeding. It doesn't have to be fast. Go slow. This could be a time, actually, a really positive interaction between a loved one and their caregiver. Um, it's a way to care for somebody and show your love, um, to have a meal with somebody, not just provide food, but have the company as well, um, so that it's not just uh, nutritional nourishment, but also social and um, you know, sometimes, you know, physical contact. How important it is when, is it when you're talking about, for example, bathing issues or cleanliness to, um, cause I read somewhere that it's, people can be somewhat, if they were modest, for example, 
prior to their dementia can find this whole thing of having to be bathed kind of in in a way insulting and so do you have any uh, suggestions for then how to maybe handle that as well right i think that right there is probably the most important thing is realizing how much of an intrusion and a change this is uh, often there are other um, caregivers that are providing help as well. Sometimes people have home health aides or um, you know, neighbors that are coming in and providing some help. So essentially you have strangers coming and that could be Okay, that could be seen as a violation. Very so recognizing that, I think, is, is will get you a long way than any sort of specifics because it really is going to be how you approach a person and how you interact with them, um, that it's not avoiding just being task-oriented, that the bathing has to get done and this needs to... But, you know, recognizing sure. the potential for trauma. Absolutely. Emotional trauma. Mm-hmm. And the I, I read somewhere something, even if you uh, keep a towel covering a person's private areas until or if you need to actually address cleaning that area during some kind of a bathing that there's there's more of a respect for the individual during that time and and breaking down what we're saying as well often we don't even think we'll kind of hammer out multi-step instructions to somebody and not think about it because it might seem basic but slowing down your words separating the sentence into one part at a time allowing somebody to complete the task and enough time that they need to take it to do so. Those um, are really key points. Before, I don't want to run out of time. I want to get to this whole idea of the caregiver. Because part of what this is all about is the fact that there are people, as we mentioned, doing this very, very difficult work. They love, if it's a loved one, clearly it's a labor of love, but it's also very much of a strain on them. What recommendations do you offer to people who are in the midst of being a caregiver? Um, I think the biggest uh, thing that uh, we emphasize is that it's it's really not negotiable to take care of yourself. Uh, often people will say that, that you they, must do that, right? Uh, that they don't have time, or that that they always come, they end up coming second. But uh, roles, uh, rates rather of depression and anxiety, and overall just poor health outcomes are pretty rampant in um, caregivers of pe- patients or, or loved ones with dementia. Um, so it's really not negotiable. If you're going, you have to maintain healthy, uh, your your own level of health, um, or else you're not going to be much help to those that you're trying to care for. Which includes nutrition, adequate sleep. Yeah, going to your own doctor appointments, um, certainly exercising, and taking time for yourself too. It's not selfish. It's actually necessary. It's necessary. And how do people, I mean, basically, how do people get a break? I mean, Let's talk a bit about respite. Sure. Because, I again, we don't want to run out of time. But. Sure. So respite, I mean, it certainly could come in different forms, but respite is a concept that basically you're tagging out <laughs> and that your loved one is going to be well cared for, either people coming into your home um, and giving you some time to take care of your own needs. There are other forms of respite where your loved one um, may go to another physical place. Um, so that's someplace, something that's probably best directed um, for an individual to approach a social worker um, through you know, either um, a clinic or, or Alzheimer's Association to see what your options are. But that concept, even the Office of Aging. Absolutely. But that concept of respite is, is really invaluable for people um, to recharge their own battery because caring for somebody with dementia, it's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And you really need to kind of time it appropriately to, to make your care sustainable. Very good advice. Thank you so much. We could talk on and on and on about this, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there 
um, very interested in this topic. Perhaps we'll have another opportunity to, to do so. But I want to thank you. My guest has been Dr. Andrea Berg. She's Assistant Professor of Medicine and specializing in geriatrics at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.